I'll ask you, church, now to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15 is where we're at this morning. And this morning we're uh, wrapping up our series that has been uh, just squarely focused on missions. And before we dive in any further, Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13 is our text this morning. I want to be completely upfront and honest with you. As uh, I've been approaching this Sunday, I've been approaching this particular sermon, my prayer for this morning's sermon has been that God would make each and every one of us uncomfortable. All right, so I wanted to warn you about that up front. I, I want you to be seeking and embracing uh, the uncomfortable nature, right? And what I mean is that through His Word, He would stir within us a discontent. A discontent for the soft, mediocre, comfortable Christianity that is so prevalent in the church today. That type of Christianity that would make us think that we've done something by just simply gathering here today. That we, would, we could give ourselves a pat on the back for checking off an attendance box. That we could give ourselves a pat on the back for just simply bringing our Bible. That we have any, in any way done something or accomplished something simply by being here. Right, That type of Christianity that would think that uh, because we fill our minds with knowledge of God, that we're able to grasp large theological concepts, concepts that we have somehow reached a certain level, right? that, we, that we don't have to move our feet because we have this such great and lofty knowledge of God. We've reached some sort of level in our lives. I want us to be uncomfortable with any sort of Christianity that would have us in that type of mindset. An immovable feet type of mindset, right? I want us all to be uncomfortable in the best way possible this morning, all right? So we find ourselves, as I said, in Romans chapter 15. And just to recap, as you know, I love to do, uh, just to make sure we're on the same page and that we're tracking along with everything that we've looked at, we began our very brief look at the theme of missions by looking at Genesis, and then we moved to Exodus. In Genesis, we looked at uh, God's covenant with Abraham and the importance of understanding what he was doing in that moment and the things that God explicitly said, that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, is what God said to Abraham. We moved to Exodus then to see God's continuation of that covenant in uh, rescuing the people from uh, slavery and exile in Egypt. And in doing so, he was saying that he was in complete consistency with what he had promised Abraham and that he was doing this for his global glory. Then last week, we looked at the words of Christ. So we jumped to the New Testament. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 in particular. And we looked at the, the Lord's Prayer and saw the importance of, in that prayer, the model for us to pray that God's name be hallowed. It's both a petition and it is a proclamation. That we are asking God that he would make his name holy in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us and in the hearts of the nations. And we are declaring, God, your name is holy. Right? So our goal all along has been to see God's redemptive purpose as revealed through the whole of Scripture in salvation history. So we're wanting to take a look at missions, not just from the tunnel vision standpoint of looking solely at the Great Commission, but seeing how did we get there? How has God been at work from the beginning 
to make his name known among the nations? And how has he been declaring that to his people, saying, this is my purpose for you, that you are fulfilling my redemptive purposes, right? And so I find myself very conflicted this morning because I've been so encouraged and energized by this series, so therefore I wish uh, that I had made it a little longer, right? However, uh, and my wife can tell you, I've found that self-imposed boundaries are very healthy for me. So uh, the other good thing is that as we press forward and we kind of realign with our Bible reading plan um, next Sunday in our, our series of preaching through the Bible, this theme of God's redemptive purpose is unavoidable throughout all of Scripture. So in a way, we get to continue this series, even though it, it ends. But this morning, the main point, the overarching theme that I want us to kind of cap off this series, as well as just kind of take away from this morning alone, is that it's worth it. That it is worth it to sacrifice the vapor that is this life that we have for eternity with God's glory and in God's glory, all right? And if that doesn't make sense to you now, my prayer is that it will be abundantly clear what I mean by that by the end of this sermon this morning. So I want to ask you, church, to go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read, again, from our text this morning, which is Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that it would make us uncomfortable in the best way possible that it would stir within us a passion and a compelling to walk in obedience to your call, to your great commission, to make your name known among the nations as you have been revealing in your redemptive purposes and salvation history from the beginning. God, help us to see that clearly. May your spirit uh, illuminate your word clearly for us. Remove any uh, boundaries or remove any, uh, anything that might be blocking our attention this morning and help us to focus solely on you and how you reveal yourself in your word and then how you call us to walk in obedience to that reality. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated this morning. So... To get a, a big picture grasp of what Paul is saying right here in Romans chapter 15 and what he's addressing in this area of Romans, we have to go all the way back to Romans chapter 12. Because from chapter 12 to chapter 15, this section of Romans, Paul is expounding on what our new life in Christ looks like. 
What are, what are the practical implications of the gospel in our life? What does it look like to live in light of the gospel, and in light of a new life in Christ? And so he wants the people to understand some things that they should be seeing, some conflicts that they're going to have in their life because of the gospel, that, that things aren't just going to be uh, easily assimilated when it comes to living out new life in Christ, that there's going to be some conflicts with, within the context of any culture. And so when we come to new life in Christ, we can't just expect things to fall in place and everything look the same. All of our relationships, our life as we knew it, our worldview, all of it is radically changed by the gospel. And this is what Paul wants the church to realize, that we can no longer relate to those who are outside of the faith in the same way that we used to. Therefore, our life is radically changed. We no longer approach our jobs, our families, our responsibilities the same way. Therefore, our life is radically changed. What Paul is trying to communicate for this large chunk from chapter 12 to chapter 15 is, uh, uh, is that, hey, church, your lives and how you go about daily life is now going to look radically different in Christ. And so he begins this section with that famous verse there from chapter 12 in saying that your lives are to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, meaning that everything you do with your life is now going to be done with the intention and purpose of worshiping God. Everything. You are a living sacrifice, that famous oxymoron there, because that sacrifice is by nature dead or intended to die. And so he's saying, by dying to self, you are living in a new life in Christ. Therefore, everything you do now is different and is an act of worship to me or to God is what Paul is, Paul is saying, right? So this is where he gets into the truth that we are members of one another. So he begins this by talking about how we now relate to one another in the church because of the gospel, right? Therefore, we live with ultimate humility. Letting our love be genuine is what he says. Blessing those who persecute us is what he tells us. Being subject to the sovereignty of God as seen in our governing authorities is what he tells us. Living with integrity as it pertains to God's word. Not getting caught up in silly disagreements and not setting a stumbling block for a brother or sister. So that's, I just summarized for you there, chapters 12 through 14, all right? So this is where we lead into the topic of gospel practicality that Paul is addressing in our text today. He says this toward the end of chapter 14. If you look there at chapter 14, uh, starting about verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So pause right there. So he's talking about here uh, this issue of eating meat uh, that is sacrificed to idols, not eating the meat, and the conviction between the two, and how there's different people within the church that have different convictions on this matter. And he says, well, when it comes to this matter, the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he continues there in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So what he's saying there is that uh, the focus 
your entire focus should not be on your freedom now of what you have to eat or drink, though you do have freedom in that area, uh, more so than you used to, is what he's trying to get the church to realize. But your focus shouldn't be on just using your freedom to fulfill and satisfy your own selfish desires. But you should be constantly thinking, well, what, what is good for peace and for mutual upbuilding? What's good for building up my brother or sister in Christ who has different convictions than I do? That just because I have freedom in this area doesn't mean I should always exercise that freedom at the sake of causing a brother or a sister in Christ to stumble. And so he continues. He said, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So he said, don't just because you want to eat this meat cause a division in the church or cause a brother or sister to stumble. So just because you have freedom in Christ doesn't mean you just get to exercise that freedom at your own will or to satisfy your own fleshly desires. And he says there toward the end, verse 23 of chapter 14, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And then that begins and transitions, therefore, into chapter 15, which continues. See, this is just one flow here, right? And I know our chapters and our verses sometimes kind of cause us to uh, segment these areas of Scripture, but it's just one continual flow of thought for Paul here. And so he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay? And then he, for this, for a saying like, you who are strong in the faith, your obligation is not to your freedom in Christ, not to your desires. Your obligation is to maintain peace and mutual upbuilding. So it's to those, the, your weaker brother or sister, who might have a conviction about this or an issue with eating or drinking or whatever it may be. And so your obligation is to them. And then he says, and he gives an example. Verse 3 of chapter 15. For Christ did not please himself. So again, his example is always look to Christ. If you have questions about what posture you should have or how you should act, look to Christ. That's Paul's answer. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he quotes from Psalm 69 there. And that's a psalm of David, so showing just kind of a messianic uh, message in that psalm and the messianic message of the covenant with David. In verse 4, For whatever was written in former days, so he's talking about the Old Testament here, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so he's saying that everything that was written is not to be written off now for those of us who are in Christ, that it was written for our instruction, that through the scriptures, God might give us hope and endurance. And he goes on to say, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. And then verse 7, which is the verse right before our text for today. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And then read verse 8 there, our first uh, verse from today's text. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So we're going to pause right there. So we have that famous word that I always like to point out there of biblical interpretation, uh, that word for, 
there at the beginning of verse 8. For, right? And that's just as good as a therefore. And so it's, that's why all that context I just gave is so important for us to understand what our text today is telling us. So Jesus, uh, he, well, here Paul says, I tell you that Christ became a servant. So he lowered himself. He humbled himself. He who was one with God became a servant to the circumcised. So that's the Jews, right? So those who are under the law, circumcised, to show God's truthfulness. So Christ became a servant to fulfill and highlight and, and, and uh, emphasize the truthfulness of everything that God had said before. He didn't come to get rid of it, to cancel it, to overrule it. He came to show its truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And we'll get to that part here in a little bit. So Jesus himself said that he did not come to abolish the law and prophets but to fulfill them. And he said that in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at last week, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews that the truthfulness of God's word might be made evident to the Jews. So this is why he, he comes to the Jews first. And oftentimes we'll see him say, don't go to the Gentiles yet or, or go first to the Jews. He's emphasizing the truthfulness of God's word in his ministry. He's showing that everything that God has said before is relevant and true and good and right. And that I am the ultimate fulfillment of that is what Jesus is doing. So he came to bring a new covenant, not by destroying or negating the old covenants, but by completely fulfilling and confirming them, right? And so our new covenant isn't, uh, isn't you know, superior in the sense that it overrules. It's superior in the sense that it highlights and confirms everything that was written in the old covenants. And so Jesus himself says, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And so this brings me to the first point that you'll see on your outline there this morning. And that is that Christ reveals the truthfulness of the Father. Christ reveals the truthfulness of the Father. And this is so essential to missions because as we go and we preach the gospel, those who we preach the gospel to don't know how good Jesus is unless they're asking the right questions. Jesus isn't the right answer unless you're asking the right questions. So Christ reveals the truthfulness of the Father. Elsewhere we see Paul say, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. The Him there is Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Right? So that what we're seeing here is that Christ comes not to say that everything that was done before, that God messed up or that God was mistaken or that God was just, just tricking you the first time, like now I'm the real thing. Christ comes to show the truthfulness of the Father and that everything that he said and did in the Old Testament is now fulfilled and made right in him. So now that Jesus has fulfilled the old covenants, now he establishes the new. And what does that mean? Well, we'll see that as we continue. So, because the, you see the second part there of verse 8. So, to um, became a servant to the circumcised, show God's truthfulness in order, so this is because, so that, right, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, who are the patriarchs? I'm talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So, everything that 
we looked at in session one of this series, as we look to the, the covenant with Abraham, Paul is saying here that Christ came in order to confirm those promises, to make those things a reality, to live those out, and so that we could be brought in. What was those promises? What were those promises? Paul is explaining that God's redemptive purposes, as revealed in his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, which are continued in his covenant at Sinai, which we looked at in session two, and his promises to David, all of these find their origins in God's abiding promise to Abraham and find their sure fulfillment in Christ. And that's what Paul wants the church to realize, is that everything that Christ came to do was in fulfillment with what God had been doing. It was in complete continuance of God's salvation history, of God's redemptive purposes. It wasn't to issue a new thing, but Christ came to fulfill and to confirm. Specifically, that Christ's ministry to the Jews reveals the fulfillment of God's promises to them and reveals the faithful truth of God's word. Well, what was God's promise to Abraham? which we expounded upon in session one of this series. What was that promise? If you'll remember from Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. But it doesn't end right there. Because then he says, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I'll make you a nation, and then through that, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. But you'll notice that this here, verse 8, is a compound sentence. So we got a comma there at the end, so, that is, so there's more, right? And that more, that's where we, we see the goodness of God come in right there. Verse 9. And, so in other words to say, it's not, it's not just to fulfill the first part of that promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless your name. No, I'm going to bless your name so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the and right there. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. In other words, Christ revealed the truthfulness of the Father for the purpose of God's global glory among the Gentiles. He revealed that everything that God had been doing included the Gentiles from the beginning. That his purpose from the beginning was to make for himself a nation and a people that would have a covenant with him and worship his name and be a banner of his glory to all the nations so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In Christ, we have the sure fulfillment, confirmation, and exaltation of all the promises of God. In Christ, we who were far off, because we're the Gentiles, we're those nations, we're those families that are far off, that are blessed through Abraham. In Christ, we who are far off have been brought near. 
And this is why Jesus says of himself in John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning, there is no skirt around or loophole for the Jews, right? That it is only through Christ, because he is the sure fulfillment of the promises to the patriarchs, because he reveals the truthfulness of God's word. You don't get to be a Jew and avoid Jesus. That it is Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone has to come through Christ and through faith in him. And now, because of everything that God revealed through the Jews and through his people, now the Gentiles can be grafted into the people of God as well. And this is, brings me to the next point there on your outline is that Christ magnifies God's global glory in the hearts of man. What was left to be a dirty mirror is an illustration that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians is cleaned and revealed in Christ. It's made clear that God's purpose was always for making a people not just of a single nation, but of every nation, tribe, tongue, language, and people. That the church was God's plan and redemptive purpose in salvation history from the beginning. Church, the very reason we are here this morning is not because we found each other by happenstance and said, let's form a neat little club where we'll get together and sing some songs and make each other feel good and read this book every now and then, right? And we'll have some potlucks from time to time. Can't forget that. The very reason that we are here is that God has shown the light of the gospel into each and every one of our hearts, into that darkness magnifying his global glory through the work of Christ on the cross. And now we are compelled to live our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So we come together week after week, day after day, saying, let's bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's come together and worship him together. Let's glorify God. Let's hallow his name, not just in my own heart individually, but let's do so communally as the people, as the church of God. And as I said to start, this means that everything we do now is to be done radically sold out for God's global glory. At least it should be, right? Because the gut-wrenching challenge that this text brings, that this text brings to light is that face-in-the-mirror question of, is my life a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the one who has saved me for his purposes. That's the reality that this text calls us, us to come into question with. Like, am I, am I really living radically sold out or am I living kind of sold out, right? Am I using my job to the fullness of God's global glory? My family, my finances, my freedom, I often refer to our country and to its founding as God's providential purpose to create a catalyst for his gospel that he would, could then continue to use for his global glory. Are we using that freedom that we have in this country to catalyze, that is, to spread the gospel, or are we wasting that freedom in pursuit of our own vain and selfish purposes? That's what this text causes us to question. Is all this that God has done all of this, 
right? Because that's, that's, that's everything before what we're reading right here. Are we living in light of these truths? Or are we just kind of like associating ourselves with those truths, taking on the title, but then like really pursuing our own vain, selfish thoughts and efforts and desires outside of that? If you're here this morning and you're a child, so a, a teenager uh, in our children's ministry, I want you to, I want you to listen, listen to me right now. I can't look at all of you at the same time, so just, you know. But if you're a child, so teenager or younger child, I want you to listen to me this morning. My goal as your pastor, wherever you're seated, right, my goal as your pastor is that I would preach you into the mission field, all right? That you would be so overwhelmed at the truth of God's glory as revealed in Scripture and seen in the cross of Christ that you would be compelled to live life radically sold out for Him. That you would not be able to think of your future, like where am I going to go to school? What am I going to do with my life? What job am I going to have? That you wouldn't be able to think of that without thinking of it in the filter of how am I going to use that for the purpose of God's global glory. That's my goal as your pastor. And so then the question is, like, are you thinking about that right now? Right? Parents and grandparents, it's your turn. All right? So if you're a parent or a grandparent, that should be just about everybody. Right? Okay? Uh, Even if you're not a parent or a grandparent, uh, I want you to look at me because it's your turn. So if our greatest vision for our children or our grandchildren is that they would grow up to be a sports star, or accomplish their wildest dreams, shame on us. If our vision, if our prayer and our dream for them is not that they would grow up to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, completely sold out for God's global glory, then we are not thinking big enough. If our thoughts for our children and our grandchildren don't extend beyond what their 401k is going to look like, how much land they're going to own, how, what their status is going to be in society, then we're not thinking big enough. And we're not thinking as God has called us to think as parents or grandparents. And my aim as your pastor, parents and grandparents and everybody in between, right? My aim as your pastor and as the pastor of your children and your grandchildren is that we is that we would only get to see our children and grandchildren either at the end of a long drive or a plane ride or every two to four years based on when they get to take missionary furlough. And that thought, that terrifies us, that, that fear handcuffs us to say that like, if, if, if they were to do that, that we would be in any, any way disappointed or think that our plans hadn't worked out in their life, that, that handcuffs us. That fear handcuffs us. Because here's the reality. If we truly view this life as a vapor, if we truly view this life as fleeting in light of eternity in God's glory, then that is absolutely nothing to sacrifice. What sacrifice is a vapor in view of eternity? Christ did not greatly commission us on the condition that we should be assured of health or comfort and safety, but that he would always be with us. I want to share with you a few words from a missionary named Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary to Burma in the early 1800s. 
So this was quite a while ago. And he was, um, he had met his future wife, Anne, uh, at a missionary conference of sorts. Uh, he met this woman named Anne and decided he wanted to marry her, so he wrote her father a letter. And I want to read uh, to you what he wrote in that letter to her father to ask permission to marry her. And this is just an excerpt. But he said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? I hope to someday receive a similar question. I don't know if I'll respond as... Anne's father did because she left the, he left the decision up to her. And this is a letter that Anne wrote to her father. This is an excerpt from a letter that Anne, Adoniram's wife, wrote to her father after they were married and had gone off. She said, I rejoice that I am in God's hands, that he is everywhere present and can protect me in one place as well as in another. He has my heart in his hands, and when I am called to face danger, to pass through scenes of terror and distress, he can inspire me with fortitude and enable me to trust in him. Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. So, church, it's worth it. Our lives, our jobs, our vacation time, our whatever it is, our children's future, it's worth it. So Paul goes on here in verse 9. So he says that Christ came to fulfill and to show the truthfulness of the Father in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, what, are those, what were those promises? What did we see in God's Word written from eternity past? Well, we see here, verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So the Gentiles might come to know him and glorify him and praise him, that his name might be hallowed in their hearts. And so Paul goes on here to say, as it is written. So he begins this, these quotations. So he starts with 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. And uh, the verse that he cites there is verse 50. But I want to read to you the verse after that as well. So 2 Samuel chapter 22. This is David speaking toward the end of his life. This is recorded as a psalm in Psalm 18. But he says, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. This is 2 Samuel 50, this is the exact quotation of, of Paul. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring 
forever. So if Christ came to confirm the promises, if he came to show the truthfulness of God's word, if he was the true and better David, then that salvation that he brings is not just to David's offspring, but we now, as the church, who has had the light of the gospel shown into the darkness of our hearts, we receive those promises. We are those whom his name has been proclaimed among. We are the nations. And that brings me to the next point there on your outline, is that the worship of God among Christ's unified church is the primary objective of his redemptive purposes. Worship. The famous quote of Pastor John Piper is that missions exist because worship does not. And so this is what we see here is that the worship of God among Christ's unified church is the primary objective of his redemptive purposes. And this should shake us to our core. And here's why. What this means is that your salvation and my salvation have never been about us. It's never been about making us feel better. It's never been about us in and of ourselves. Our salvation has always been about serving God's greater purposes for his glory, which include, get this, the continued spread of that global glory. So not only does he save us so that we can worship him, but he saves us so that we can reciprocate his grace and make that known so that others can hallow his name and worship him. So let us not waste another second of our salvation focused on ourselves. And this is what it means to live sold out for the glory of God. Not just that God be glorified in our own lives, but that we would see God's name be hallowed in the hearts of peoples across the globe. Because it's that same mission, that same redemptive purpose that shone the light of the gospel into our hearts and made us believe. And this is what Paul wants the church at Rome to see. That it's not only by God's grace that they believe, but that it is in complete fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose as revealed in his salvation history. So to do this, I want you to watch because he doesn't just quote one Old Testament verse. Notice what Paul does here. So Verse 9, he quotes from 2 Samuel. Verse 10, again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So that's from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And it's towards the end of Moses' life. And uh, I just want to read uh, from you or for you uh, a, uh, a, a larger portion of that. So Deuteronomy 32 is where Paul quotes from there. And we see this uh, starting in verse 43 of Deuteronomy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes the vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So that's another area which Paul quotes from here. Deuteronomy 32 there again, towards the end of Moses' life, 
And he's declaring, he's reminding the people of what God is doing in their midst. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. So here he quotes from Psalm 117. Psalm 117 is a very short psalm, but it just simply says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Verse 12, Paul says, And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So don't miss this, okay? Because I think this is all too easy for us to skip over and not really catch what Paul just did for us right there. And it's just too good to miss. So starting back in verse 9, right, he references, he gives us a reference from 2 Samuel. Okay? So it's the historical books. And it's within the Davidic covenant, right? So verse 9, he quotes from 2 Samuel, historical books. And then, verse 10, this is the second one he gives us. He quotes from Deuteronomy, so the law, right? And and within the Sinai covenant, and as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and fulfillment of the promises given to the patriarchs, right? So, he's saying, again, so we've got the law, I mean, excuse me, the historical books and the law so far, right? Verse 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. So Psalms. So what's that? Wisdom literature. Okay. That's the third one. So fourth. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. So Isaiah, the prophets. So we have historical books, the law, wisdom literature, and prophets. So in other words, he's saying it's the whole Old Testament here. This is what God has been doing. This has been his purposes. And Christ came to fulfill this. Just as what, that's exactly what Isaiah 11 is pertaining to. So the prophets and referencing the coming of Christ, therefore the bringing of the new covenant. So Paul explicitly makes it clear that the entire redemptive and salvific history of God's actions in the world as revealed in his word have included the nations all along. Now, look at each one of these verse references that Paul gives here. And what else do you notice? What's the the command of each one of these? What's the focus of each one of these verses? The focus of each one of these verses is the global worship of God among all the peoples. That is that God would be glorified above all and among all. That the nations would see God as their greatest joy. And that's the next point there on your outline. That our greatest joy in this life comes from finding our greatest satisfaction in Christ. Because that's what Paul is showing that Christ became a servant to the circumcised and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the Jews and the Gentiles. Why? That they may praise and hallow and glorify his name. And that that might be where our greatest joy is found. Not in fulfilling our own desires, not in worshiping ourselves or any other person or false God, but that our greatest joy would be focused to the only place where we can find it. In Christ. So don't miss 
this church. When we find our greatest satisfaction in Christ, we can't help but be compelled to make his name known among the nations, that the nations may join us in rejoicing at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ the Son. And then I want you to see the triune work here. So we've had God the Father, Christ the Son. Final verse there, verse 13. May the, hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing in who? Believing in Christ, right? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Final point there on your outline. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to abound in hope. So no matter how great our foe may seem, no matter how far away the distant places he calls us may seem, no matter how long it might be before we see our children or grandchildren again, the Holy Spirit empowers his church to abound in hope. By what? By believing in Christ and that the God of hope would fill us with joy and peace. The Spirit of God, which indwells those who believe in Christ, unifies and empowers us to abound in the sure hope of eternity. And that makes the small sacrifice of the vapor of this life seem more than worth it, that we might find true joy in Him. We're going to enter now into a time of response, and that is exactly what it is for. It's for responding. So if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Christ, He has drawn you to Himself and you are seeking that, then you respond accordingly. You, you sing out of gratefulness and thanks to God's grace to reveal Himself in His Word this morning and to praise Him for His Word, to praise Him for His grace to, and to, to say, God, help me to be obedient to what you have shown us this morning. The second part of that is if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, this time of response is also for you. But it's for you to respond to the Lord's drawing because he's drawing you to himself. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be with those two people here this morning. God, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that there are two kinds of people in this world, those who are lost and those who are being saved. God, I pray that uh, for our church, that you would help them to respond accordingly this morning. Help them respond in, in humility, in repentance, throwing ourselves at your grace and worshiping you for that and seeking to follow in obedience. For those this morning that are here who may be lost, God, I pray that you would remove every barrier, that as you are drawing them to yourself, that you would make that abundantly clear and help them to not be able to resist. Pray that you would let them know that they can come and talk to me about what that looks like, give them comfort, give them peace, and provide that in Christ. We pray that you would just bless this time and bless the impacts that it has on us for eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.